All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers, what the fuck buddies, what the fucking ears, what the fuck publicans, what the fuckocrats, what the fuck nicks? What's happening? I'm Mark Marin. This is my podcast, WTF. Thank you for joining me. I hope you had a pleasant fourth. I hope you have all your digits. I hope you uh, didn't wreck your car or black out or make any family members cry or burn your hands and face. I hope everything worked out for most of you and you reflected and were thoughtful or you were just uh, aggravated and excited. Whatever it was, welcome. I hope you had a, uh, a pleasant Fourth of July. I find that, uh, well, you know, I first let me deal with some sadness. There's some sadness a couple of days ago since I last talked to you. I, I, I got confirmation that uh, uh, one of my ferals, one of my, uh, my old uh, outdoor buddies, the uh, one of the one-sided relationships I have with uh, with wild animals, with wild cats who I feed, uh, is uh, is dead. And you, I've talked about this guy for a long time. This is a deaf black cat, R.I.P. D.B.C. He was. Uh, an amazing cat, it, only because, if only, if not only, what? how do I want to say it? He was an amazing cat in a lot of ways, but the, the primary one being, he was completely wild, and he couldn't hear shit, could not hear anything. It was a miracle that he lived. He was, a, he was an actual spirit animal. I thought he had a mystical quality. I was always amazed to see him when he'd show up and he'd go away for for weeks at a time and go eat somewhere else and he didn't eat for a few days i just had a bad feeling you know i, I just but i always have a bad feeling uh about that stuff and and then my neighbor adam confirmed that uh that his daughter his little girl isabel had found the uh the cat under a tree over there next door down on the hill uh dead and um he didn't look sick, and I don't know. I, I don't want to get too grisly about it, but somehow or another, I've I've been blessed with not having to find the animals in my life uh, dead. You know, uh, Boomer disappeared. Uh, Butchie died when I was away. Uh, Scaredy Cat 1 was uh, dead out in the street and then disappeared. Deaf Black Cat is now dead in, uh, in a grave down on the hill next to another feline in a small, uh, in Adam's uh, small feline uh burial site the truth of the matter is that cat's been around for at least seven years that i can remember and uh you know i did the best i could and gave him a good life he lived under the house it was a miracle that he lived for so long but he did he was sort of a symbol of strength for me deaf black cat and uh and now he's gone i remember i took him to the vet once i had to trap him and take him to the vet because half his face was bleeding and swollen and full of pus i thought he lost an eye and i thought this cat cannot afford to lose any more of his senses and it wasn't it was an abscess and i got him back but the vet said i've never i've never seen a wilder cat he was a tough little fuck and he's he managed to dodge death for many years and now he's gone so rest in peace deaf black cat i'm sorry to see you go uh, today on the show, I uh, I got a short talk with uh, my old uh, writing and acting comrade Dave Anthony about his uh, his book that apparently he didn't really want to sell. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> he he wrote a book based uh, you know drawn from his uh, dollop 
podcast, he and uh, his co-host Gareth Reynolds. It's called The United States of Absurdity, Untold Stories from American History. Uh, You can get that wherever you get books, but apparently Dave didn't think to give me a call. Maybe this platform was not enough for Dave. I'll talk to him about it, but he's here for a minute. And then after that, I talked to Jeff Baina, the filmmaker. Maybe you're familiar with some of his movies. I guess the biggest one that got a, a bit of attention a little while ago was Joshi, which I enjoyed. He's got a new movie out with uh, my co-star in Glow, Allison Brie, and her husband, Dave Franco, and Aubrey Plaza, and Kate Micucci, and John C. Riley and uh, Molly Shannon. And uh, there's a lot of people in it. Nick Offerman's in it for a second. Paul Reiser does a great job in it. Fred Armisen's in there for a second. A lot lot of people in the movie, and it's an odd, dirty, little period piece based in medieval times at a nunnery. But uh, Jeff Baina is a very engaged, intense, smart dude, and it was good talking to him. So this year, I went over uh, to the regular party I go to at uh, Dan and Jen's house. Dan from Gimme Gimme Records and his uh, wife, Jen, a, a acupuncturist. Is that what you call him? Is it? Yeah, I think that's the proper term. It's nice, nice gathering people. But, you know, there's a lot of good conversations around, a lot of good food, a lot of roasted pork. My statins are working overtime today uh, because I did uh, make the exception. I did. You know, it's weird when you eat shit like that after a certain age. And I don't know if it's trackable or you just start to wonder, which burger did you in? Which burger just filled that tube going into your pump? Which one was it? Which was the last straw? Which piece of pork? Which rib? Which burger? Which egg? You know, which one was it? And was it worth it? If you could have avoided that one burger that finally uh, spackled your pipe, you know, would you have done it? But, uh, you know, I've been good and uh, the pork was good and the desserts were good. Pie, a lot of pie fucking happened. I think I annoyed uh, Dan's wife, Jen, because like she makes this huge, she slow cooks his pork all day. So, of course, I'm just going to be lingering around the kitchen helping out until the pork comes out. And then again, I go back and I'm lingering just hanging around, waiting for the pies to come out, offering some help. Can I put that pie on the table and watch you slice it and take the first piece? Is there ice cream? Is there any shame in that? Why have decorum? I don't want to be cut out of the pork or the pie. But I I was I went home and I felt like, you know, maybe I should try to behave like a fucking adult, but I've never been cool or an adult or anything else. I'm either sort of withdrawn or kind of... Uh, aggravated or just running around like a fucking child that's that's a pretty good range though spent some time talking to uh, a guy i kind of know joe wong a lot of soundtrack people he, he does movie and tv soundtracks but joe wong has a podcast that uh, he only talks to drummers he's a drummer it's called the trap set so if that interests you musicians and drum aficionados go check out joe's podcast he kind of he, he claims he based it on this, but it's just it's drummer specific. All right. So Dave Anthony. Dave Anthony is a, a friend. We should be spending more time together. He lives close by. We should be hanging out. But uh, for whatever reason, we don't. And when I told him, I said, I can't. You know, I saw his book in Chicago at a bookstore and I was like, why the fuck wouldn't he come over and, and try to talk about his book and maybe get people to buy it? I, I don't know, but this but I'll get to it with him. So this is me and, and Dave Anthony having a you know a, a, a tense reunion, a friendly tense reunion, which is uh, every time we get together. 
Wait, wait, where do you record your podcast? The, uh, the, uh, what is it? Dollop. The Dollop. You're supposed to know the name. Dude, I how just... How long have we been... How long have we known each you, other? Okay, do you, I know the dollop. Of course I do. I just had a brain fart for a minute, but I thought you were going to say that I was supposed to have done research no, for no, this no. particular conversation. I don't Let I me don't give think... the backstory. I'll okay, give the backstory. Ahead. Go ahead. So I don't see you for a long time for whatever reason, you know, you're... We're both busy and we're both, uh, we're both isolating. <laughs> <laughs> so it's nothing personal. <laughs> so, so well, well, we've worked together a lot. We like each other. We have a good yeah. time when we hang out. Yeah, for a little while. And I'm in fucking Chicago doing a shoot, and one of the locations is a bookstore, and I'm looking at their table <laughs> of new books, and I'm like, the fucking dollar book. <laughs> What Dave, does Dave not want to sell the book? I mean, like, I'm down the street. I, I have people who I like on my show to yeah. maybe help sell the thing they made, but I guess he doesn't want to sell the book at all. Do you? So you have a podcast that you do stuff on? Yeah. I know I, oh, I'm sorry. Did I need to shoot your reminder <laughs> that we're still on the air over here? I, I remember uh, I remember I, I had a list of people. And okay, then, what was on that list? And then you were on the list. In parentheses? Did you never get a book? No, I didn't get anything. That's, this all seems very weird. <laughs> Yeah, because I, I, I think I think what happened was is I had a list I had a list of people and then uh, I think I got I I know what I did I got to you and I I've seen all the shit you get yeah so I was like well I have to hand deliver this to him because if I send it to him in an envelope it's gonna fucking sit there on the ground oh that's what you thought yeah but I didn't get a text from you or anything yeah I, I really, no well I, that's that's a like that's dude, a complicated and involved process to reach out to another human being really to say well, like yeah. I got a book coming out. Yeah, I want to send you one. Maybe yeah. I could come on and talk about it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so right there, there's a lot of levels to that. Well, well let's talk about those First levels. of all, I'm leaving my house. Well, what about the level of sort of like, I'm not going to give him that. No. Nah, I'm not going <laughs> to let him have any. What about that level? <laughs> Fuck Marin. <laughs> I'm not going to put I, myself in that position where I got to kiss up to that guy there's a lot of i think there's a lot of jealousy with my uh book because i don't think your Je book has the Je same sort of jealousy pictures no oh, pop-ups we have uh we have we have a lot of draw drawings in here you no, I, so you didn't buy it in Chicago. You just looked at it, and then and then you were a little bit I, angry. What the, that was weird. My anger was so stupid because I'm like, well, fuck him. <laughs> if, if he doesn't want to let me help him out, I'm not going to buy his book. If it, and it was I, like convoluted, I was just like, I, all I, I remember thinking, I have to, I have to actually hand this, hand deliver this to Mark. But then I never. I then, know, yeah, then, I and it. it just sits there, and I'm I like, get it. Wow. And then, and then you sit at home and go, like, I don't know, why isn't this book selling? Yeah, it's not selling. Why yeah, isn't yeah. what's going on? And then everything <laughs> just it works out exactly as you expected, Dave. Yeah, then, then it's like I told nothing. you we shouldn't have done the book. <laughs> I told you, I, sh I told you we shouldn't have tried to sell it. <laughs> I told. <laughs> so convoluted plans on both sides. Have you ever heard the podcast? That's the thing. Have you listened to it? I watched you do it live once. Oh, that's right. And the thing, I, I like it, but like, I, I wouldn't take that personally. Like, ask me a more broader question. Do you listen to any podcast? Yeah. Try that one. Do you listen to any podcast? I don't, Dave. I, I don't know why. I don't listen to one podcast. You know Not why? Here's, here's, how I, here's how I take in audio material. I'll put on my Sonos occasionally. Yeah. Uh, for the last three months, uh, I'm so engaged in the news in print that I don't even listen to NPR news. Uh, and most of the time, I listen to records or I listen to music in my car. I primarily listen to music. And that's it. That's the story. 
Even when you're traveling, you listen to music? I do. Uh, a lot of times when I'm traveling, I don't listen to anything. They're, like I, I'm so inundated with music on an intentional basis. Sometimes when I travel, like on a plane, I'll watch some movies, or I'll just sit there and listen to the plane engines in a mild panic. You, that, yeah, that's... that's <laughs> First of all, that's not good for you. I know. You should always have some sort of noise happening that can yeah. distract you from your yeah. own thoughts. And sometimes if I'm interviewing a, a musical guest, I'll, I'll be busy listening to their entire catalog for no reason. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you got to pretend, pretend like you're doing research. Well, I'd like to level. get a handle on something. I'd like to know where it went bad and why I don't know the most recent 20 records. <laughs> well, you never know the recent 20. I mean, after I know, a certain why is point. That? Because after a certain point, you go, I get what you do. Right. And, and then, then you're done. done. And then they think they've, they're doing something miraculous and amazing and sometimes they are sometimes they do put out good stuff when they're older but just no one's listening so the podcast is you take bizarro american it's not even even bizarro it's just sort of you know i i I guess the best way to describe it is like uh uh, history of the united states by howard zinn yeah i I sort of took that uh people's history a people's history so so i try to look at history from the people who are being persecuted or you know, oh really so yeah. but it can be but sometimes you do smaller stories too yeah right? yeah like, we do small there's smaller stories for sure um i think the book is mostly full of uh so these of, were all stories that were featured on the podcast yeah except for one uh that we threw in there but so you yeah. got sports stories yeah we got a lot of sports stories Gr- I, medical breakthroughs well there's a lot of medical what's the lobotomy stuff. one freeman's lobotomy uh that was a guy who uh basically started uh a lobotomy craze because they had a lot of people in hospitals that it was just packed full of people they didn't know what to do with. And Is that when it. Frances Farmer got hers? Um, no, I think she came later, mm. but it might at the tail end. So that was yeah, like the new, the new great psychological breakthrough. Totally, this and, will work. And this guy went around like, I mean, he was like a rock star and going with his to, little like uh, ice and, pick and yeah, and do a bunch of a bunch at once and really? people be lined up and then so they'd just, be like, just uh, stick that ice pick up into a frontal lobe and just knock make that it, person into dumbness, just like just bl- like blender it, just like yeah, and then like well, you're fixed, and then and then the doctors be like, this is great. And now he sits in a chair and yeah. smiles. Perfect. Thank you for doing that. Yeah, I wish you would have left the ability to use a fork in there. <laughs> that would have been helpful to everybody <laughs> yeah so he he went around doing that and i think he at one point he had a gold gold plated pick and a and a really? hammer and like yeah he was a, like henry ford setting up a factory no like, no he just, was just guy. rolling them through and he's doing a bunch and so what was the commentary angle on that i mean like I mean, why, why that story well for us I, there's a there's a big uh uh emphasis on how what medicine started out as yeah. and what it became. And the fact is that it was a crazy barbaric thing that he did. But at the end of the day, it helped lead us to chemical fixes for these. Well, these they, they were able to like, well, he got the area right. The lobe yeah, seems that to of, be. Exactly. Where how things do we, are happening. Yes. And now, how then, do we leave their personality intact? How do we, how do we not do it with a hammer? <laughs> yeah. So all that stuff. Uh, and what's the, uh, the death of George Washington? Well, they bled George Washington to death. Oh, that's how George Washington died. He had they believed in in bloodletting then, and three different doctors Still? came in to treat him in one night, and they all they all bled him. And at the at the end, they had taken half of his blood, and that's how he died. Really? Yeah. And what was he sick with? Something though? He gotten like a really bad cold, maybe possibly Come pneumonia. On. He was just out. Hilariously, he he was he, he was he in his seventies though. Was he old? He was in his seventies, but he went out on his on his uh, farm for whatever reason yeah. in a storm, and yeah. he got soaked. And he was in his dinner clothing, and he 
refused to be late to dinner so he just sat there in his cold wet clothing uh-huh. eating with his wife and, yeah. and after that he went upstairs to change so he got really sick because of that so maybe at that point the president was uh, not ha- didn't have his full capacity or slightly stubborn to the point of death <laughs> <laughs> you know, and uh, and what was your angle on that what was the commentary like even I, even the father of our country was a dummy <laughs> <laughs> no, that was an, another medical one of just of just you don't hear about that. But they, they bled our president to death, our first president, because they thought they were doing the right thing when they were clearly. What's the uh, Kentucky meat shower? That's just crazy. Uh, <laughs> no, I, just really, a lady, I wouldn't have known that from the title. <laughs> a lady was just out in her yard. Yeah. Doing a little laundry and uh, a bunch of meat fell out of the sky. And then everyone was trying to figure out where it came from. What about um, what's the uh, Tim Doc Anderson story? Oh, that's a guy that's still alive. Uh, he is a boxer, uh, or was a boxer in Florida, and uh, he was part of this manager who who kept wanting to take falls. Yeah. And he was trying to build up another boxer, so he told him to take a fall, and at some point the guy wouldn't, so he drugged him. And the whatever he drugged him with, it lasted for years. Oh, my God. And he confronted the manager and like he, this guy like, yeah because he didn't know what was wrong with him after a while he confronted the manager yeah and the manager was like i'm gonna kill your sister or whatever and then he ended up shooting the manager killing the manager so now he's in jail right but it's one of those he didn't know he was gonna die you poisoned me like oh my god yeah so he got life in jail but so i kind of think a bit much you and gareth reynolds do you who does the primary research i do gareth gareth is uh the funny the funny uh part of the thing he yeah in it's, the all, it's important that you have one of those guys i'm the uh, straight the, man yeah, the you funny, know that <laughs> <laughs> no you can be funny i've seen you be really funny but I understand you need a, a, a different type of funny. Well, I mean, it's not like like on your show. I would sort of carry. You were the, psychotic. Yeah, yeah. So I would carry the scenes with my hilarity. All right. Well, yeah, and now that? it's sort of the opposite on the podcast. I, well, I, th- I, th- I think. I think <laughs> what, what really happened was we both added to a, a certain dynamic that created the humor. Yeah, it, there was a there was a relationship that was yeah. sort of how, how accentuated I, how, our issues, yeah, and then right. and then from those, I I got to come knew, in and steal scenes. I know, I knew that that was a wind up. You know, like I know <laughs> that it was going to start out pretty good. Like right when I heard you started, I'm like, is that is going to end the way it always yeah, does? It doesn't. I mean, <laughs> I was like, don't maybe give me any room. And, <laughs> Why don't you give me room? <laughs> but what's it, what is the process of, like, you do two of these a week on the podcast. Yeah, so I do a lot of research. It's a lot of work, and I, I write them up, and then he just, he's never heard of the subject, so I just sit down and read it. And and so. the only context is you, you just think it's weird, or you think it's an interesting Or interesting, story. or it has uh, 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 something in it that relates to today. Like, yeah. There's a lot of stuff I do that I try to parallel, you know, whatever's happening. Yeah. Well, I mean, because like you, I initially thought that because I don't listen to it regularly, that it sort of has a tabloid element, but it doesn't really. No, no, mean, some of it is. It's so. more of a social commentary element than a tabloid element, right? Like, look at how fucking weird people are. Yeah, and look how fucked up things were. And oh, shit's not still, that different. It's still fucked up. <laughs> Turned up, yeah, it's not that great. <laughs> I don't know if you've noticed what's going on. It's not. It's not really that great. People are telling me. Yeah, you yeah. should. Uh, I, you know what drives me nuts is there are people out there in the world who are just going about their lives and they're just sort of like yeah i don't know really what's going on i was in the uh, gym today and the lady next to me was watching uh uh extra and i was like how do you do that now i know i i feel that too but like there's also a part of me that's sort of like well i have to remember to do that occasionally 
yeah check out and just kind of well i don't know if it's checking out it's like be by being checked in ultimately unless you're actually you know uh taking action yeah. All you're doing is just heating your shit up yep. and just going like, we're fucked. Yeah, we're screwed. Yeah. And then you just sit around and that's, and that's what you're it. doing. That's what yeah. you're living in. Yeah. So unless you're like taking like taking it in and going like, well, I'm going to send some money or write some emails or, or go out into the streets, all you're doing is like, oh, it's not getting any better. <laughs> <laughs> you know, why aren't you watching extra? <laughs> well, it's, what's okay. the point? Yeah, why? What's the point? Is it over? It's over. Yeah, what's, why would you want to watch that? No one yeah. cares. Well, I, I would never watch that anyways, but I do try to you know, have conversations with people and, and stay on top of things. It's very hard for me, knowing I have a platform, Yeah. to you know, not just become one of those kind of you know, strident, existentially panicked, aggravated people that's just sitting reeling off the news and reacting to it because... There, there is humanity still going on. So, like, I'll choose to, you know, to pick stories that sort of like, well, this is where the human spirit kind of won, yeah. or, you know, or like I yeah. kind of related to that, like, because the, the, just ramming up against this fucking doofus is it, it's just feeding it. Oh, it totally just, it just, feeds it. Yeah, it's like he he likes any kind of attention. Yeah, it doesn't just, matter what it is. Any any sort of swirling madness, he's like, this is great. So, what else is going on? How's the kid? The kid's good. The kid's a little baseball uh, freak. Right. Oh, yeah. We talked a little bit about that. I just like I I just feel like you uh, you on the field, you're coaching too. coaching, getting into uh, arguments and possible fights with other coaches. Uh, I may have told them a guy to fuck off on the Little League baseball field after he he screamed. I can tell you this. You're not going to deny or confirm it or I'm not going to deny it. That's what happened. Uh, He he got I went over to them to. Hey, can you, can you talk to your team about misbehaving? They're being kind of bullies. What were they doing? They were uh, they were badgering our kids, yeah. yelling them, "You pitch slow," just that kind of the kind yeah. of stuff you don't want to happen with little yeah. kids. Yeah. And I went over to say, "Hey, could you talk to your kids to make them stop?" And he got in my face and screamed at me. And I thought we were going to get in a fist fight. Oh, so you knew exactly where it was coming from. Like, not only were they not going to stop, but yeah. he was probably encouraged. I immediately realized, oh, this is actually coming from the top. Yeah. <laughs> it's a top-down thing. And so he was yeah. screaming at me. So I did what I always do, which yeah. is I looked at him and I said, fuck you. <laughs> and then he got more mad because I swore around children. Oh, really? And then he said, what did you just say to me? And I said, I said, go fuck yourself. Oh, good. And then he didn't know what to do because he, he thought I wasn't going to. He thought I'd be like, oh, I'm sorry. But I didn't. I doubled yeah, down. Yeah, yeah. And then, uh, and then he got very angry and he wouldn't shake my hand at the end of the game and all that stuff. And then I went home and I looked him up. Yeah. And he used to be Jeb Bush's press secretary. Oh, see, it all comes around. <laughs> Everything is political. There's no- <laughs> yeah, it really is. And he used to also, uh, when he was in college, he was the college mascot, Bobby the Bear. Oh, yeah. So he's got a lot on his plate. He's got a lot on his plate. A lot of baggage. And I know if I see him around town, I can go, Bobby the Bear, and he'll lose his mind. (laughs) (laughs) That's your ace in the hole. You're ready. (laughs) All right. So this book, The United States of Absurdity, Untold Stories from American History, Dave Anthony and Gareth Reynolds. And this is uh, with a forward by Patton Oswalt. I yeah. might as well mention that because that was your big idea, wasn't it? What that Patton Oswalt? Oh yeah, do that was forward. Gonna, well, yeah, that was going to sell it, right? Uh, yeah, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Did it? Do you know? If books are hard, it's get, it's been yeah. The they're, the publishing company's happy. With you get these it, with quarterly uh, sort of invoices, yeah. that just show you how much money you didn't make. <laughs> 
<laughs> it's just like it's just like in parentheses against your advance. I, how yeah. much in debt you are still? I just assume I'm going to get some that says almost. Yeah, and well, that's oh, about you'll it. get them for years unless a miracle <laughs> happens. But this one, they 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 ordered a second printing because uh, they didn't think it was going to sell that well, and then it did. Oh, good. So it's who knows what I don't know what the numbers are. I'll and the podcast is popular. Yeah, the podcast is doing well. We're not. Are you? Is it still limited to Australia, or is it spreading? No, no. Bit? We're actually more popular in America than Australia now. Wow. Yeah, we we came around and. Uh, oh, good. Yeah, it's exciting. Well, it's good to see you. Nice to see you. We just, should, we should see each other more than once a well, year. Well, we live down the street. We do live. Super I don't know. Close. I, I'm not. You know, I don't know what it is or who you hang out with, but I know you long enough, and I've heard you talk about enough people to where, like, I'm one of the better ones that gets. I understand oh, I you. Yeah, we. No, you do, a, and that might be the time together. You but, understanding me might be the issue. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, you, you'd, you'd rather just sort of like, hey, can you just let me be a dick? Can you just? <laughs> yeah, that's sort of what I do publicly and with thing. most other people. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Do you still I, work out at my gym? I belong there. <laughs> I'm, I'm still able to. I never see you in there. That's I, why. I know. She goes to the yoga classes sometimes. Yeah. And I tend to work out with a little this woman who trains me down the street over here. Okay. But I do want to go up there. Yeah. Well, it's what not do you far. do there? Uh, I just mostly ride the bikes. Maybe a little bit. I, I tend to like run outside. Run on the circle thing up, up above the the. No, no, like I tend to run out here, like I'll, oh, I'll just outside, run, yeah, just outside out your in house. the world. How is that? It's great. It seems terrifying to me. Well, it's quiet up here. Like I can go up in the hill. There's no cars. You like, just, yeah. But there's enough room to run around up here. And yeah, yeah. There's like hills. Like now I'll I'll run up the street and run down. And then I'll walk up this big steep hill and run a little bit and come back around. And like running on the machine, like it's just sort of like now running thing? on a machine is is tedious. But if I could get into the habit, so the other stuff, like the working out business, I do with her, but I, I should go up and do some classes, like some yoga, man. I was I'm, in yoga for a while. I'm thinking about uh, jumping into a Pilates uh, thing. Yeah? Yeah. That's hard with the, with the machines? Yeah. Or, oh, yeah. I might. I might. That's, it's, it's subtle. Like, you don't realize it until the day after when like, you, you know, can't stand up and you shit your yeah. pants. And like you're crying. Yeah. yeah. I got to go easy on this. Lost control of my <laughs> digestive system. It's <laughs> I think I pushed it too That's hard. That's the kind of workout I want is when I stand up and just evacuate my bowels. <laughs> Preferable to get to the bathroom first or you don't want to go back to that class. You don't yeah. want to be the guy who shit his pants. Well, if I stand up and shit my pants, I go, oh, it's working. I'm getting in shape. <laughs> to the shocked look of housewives. <laughs> Let that guy in. <laughs> All right, buddy. Well, maybe I'll see you up at the gym. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Yep. There you go. So go get the, go get his book. It's fun. There's pictures, and you know it's a nice maybe you know a uh, like you know, I'll take this into the bathroom book. You know what I'm saying. So Jeff Baina uh, is a guy I met. You know I went to where did I meet him first? Oh yeah, we were set up on sort of a coffee date by uh, the agency. And we had a great talk, and then I had him on, and I went to a screening of his movie. It was very funny. While the little the little hours was still in post-production when they were still tweaking it you know jeff let me come watch it where they were doing the editing in a screening room so it was a screening and you never know what a screening is going to be how many people are going to be there who's going to be there and i remember i showed up and we were waiting i was waiting for jeff and then you know another guy walks in and it's father john misty so it was just me and father john misty at a screening with jeff and uh it wasn't awkward just a you know very small and uh, kind of a uh, interesting crowd, me, 
Father John Misty and the director. But the movie is funny. It's raw. It's good. It's it's uh, it's a unique thing. That's for sure. And it's based on some a very old piece of literature, which I found compelling. And I talked to Jeff about it. But this is me and Jeff Baina. The movie is The Little Hours. It's playing in New York and L.A. It's going to be expanding throughout the country this month. So this is me talking to him, to Jeff, the director and writer of the thing. It was very funny to me that, like, I'm going to see the screening of this new movie. Allison Brie's in it, who, you know, I just worked with, and John C. Riley and uh, Aubrey Plaza's in it, who is your girlfriend. Yep. Molly Shannon. Kate McCucci. Kate McCucci. But, but, like, I didn't know what to expect. I know that you told me it was based on the Decameron, which is a big book, and this is one story in that book. Mm -hmm. I read the Decameron, I think, when I was in a satire class in college. Right, who wrote the Decameron? Giovanni Boccaccio. So, so you invite me to this screening, and I didn't know who was going to be there. And it turns out it's just me and Father John Misty sitting there. What's his real name again? Josh Tillman. Josh Tillman, <clears throat> who I've met, and it's just me and Tillman. Well, you did you did it, the WTF with him, right? I did, yeah. And it was just an odd thing. Like it was just to me, it was very odd. It's just like going to be me and Father John Misty watching a movie with you. Perfect audience. Yeah. Are you guys real tight? We're we're friends. I, I wouldn't say we're super tight. He he's better uh, friends with Aubrey. Oh, okay. He, she did, she's known him for years. She did a music video with him. Yeah, but the movie is it's it's kind of raw. It takes place in what what's it, what's the date? Thirteen forty seven. Thirteen forty seven at a it's is it a it's not a convent. It's, it's a an convent. Actual, it is a convent. It is a convent. And the premise is that you know like the, some of the stuff that I didn't know about that time was that that some women were sentenced to convents in a way. Well, right. most women. I mean, the, the way it kind of worked was a convent was a school. So, every, you know, especially if you were a noble, you'd go to a convent and then at some point you come out, you know, right. graduate. Right. Either get married or you just lead your life. But there's a bunch of sort of considerations uh, that I guess we don't have now about people, the way people are treated. Yeah. And so if you were the youngest kid, generally a man or a woman, you'd be a priest or nun. Right. If you were not married, you become a nun. If you were divorced, you became a nun. If your husband died, you became a nun. There's, and then generally, if your father wanted to have favor with the church, the more daughters or sons he had in the church would be better. So it just there's all these different versions of how you end up becoming a nun. That's the Middle Ages. Middle Ages. Then a little bit later, I think in around 1410 or 1420, yeah, um, women started almost doing it as a feminist movement where they would like choose to become nuns. Yeah, and it was very funny because Alison Bree's character is there because her father wants to have uh, you know a relationship with the church, yeah, right? Yeah. And the father could be, it could not be any more Jewish than Paul Reiser, even in the scenes, yeah. which I thought was funny. Yeah. And when I talked to you afterwards about this, because it's really about sex in this convent, mm-hmm. mostly, right? Yeah. Would you say? Yeah. And that, and that's directly from Decameron? Um, the, 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 the sex the, aspect? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So what I told you afterwards was it felt somewhat like Alex Cox's movies, or specifically Walker, mm-hmm. for some reason, because there was something about... The anachronism? Yeah. 
and and also that there there seemed to be not as much of an intentional infusion of modern sensibility into the dynamics between people, but it was definitely there. That you felt like the setting was what it was, the premise and the story was what it was, but there was the activity and visceral type of engagement between these characters seemed sort of modern and raw. Well, I just think that's timeless. I think that's that's human humans. I guess I guess that's probably true, and yeah. I, I don't. You, I guess we don't usually think about that timeline. I mean, that, that was pretty much my my intention was to sort of bridge that gap so that you're when you're watching that time period you don't have this sort of hazy sort of buffer between you and that time where you're not connecting with these people but they're just people yeah that you know obviously they don't have technology and they're you know nuns and but they're just people they have the same desires and the same hopes and dreams and, and they're filthy just like they've always yeah, been people animals. And they're <laughs> yeah. filthy animals with struggle and yeah. conflict and th- now what how did this work out? Because, I mean, you don't spend a lot of money on movies. So how do you get to shoot in Italy at this beautiful place? Um, it worked out really well. So we, so just sort of like going back in history, I guess, and yeah. I sort of preface all of this. Um, I went to NYU. I got a degree in filmmaking. I also got a minor in medieval renaissance studies, which wasn't on purpose. I, yeah. I took a bunch of random ass classes. Like I took a class on Harmony of the Spheres, yeah. Arabian Nights, Jewish mysticism. And one of the classes I took was called Sexual Transgression in the Middle Ages and Renaissance. Yeah. And we studied the Decameron and the Heptameron and the Penitentials and just sort of the whole history. Yeah. And what it did was it opened my eyes to this time period. I, you always think of nuns and priests and all these people as sort of just being these like religious robots that are just going through their day and, yeah. and almost so unre- unrelatable. And when we, the penitentials are sort of the punishments the church levy against, levies against people, you know, for different transgressions. And there are so many of them. And it was so specific and rich that you're, you, you just realize people are just doing fucked up shit all the time. And, um, you know, one of my teacher explained to me is nuns weren't, obviously wanting to be there they were just kind of stuck there by circumstance and sometimes like the mother superior isn't the most uh religious or the the, the you know the most uh i guess rule oriented they, yeah. they sometimes were just the oldest people that were surviving and they were like party girls and so it was almost like they were having these like crazy orgies all the time and it was you know hoping no one would look and it was there was a crazy bureaucracy to the church obviously and the higher up you are in the church um you know you kind of want to look better so you you, you everything that's below you kind of like you know pushing under the rug right and so there was just there wasn't a lot of accountability it was just like this shit show happening and so which, I thought, which you know obviously in the the more demonic and evil way it had been happening with the the pedophiles for, for sure for centuries yeah yeah you just brush everything under the rug and you just hope it goes away because people are fallible and so that just i always wanted to make this movie and then joe swanberg who i know you've worked with yeah um he was crashing at my place and i was telling him this idea and and we were actually watching dog tv and um he was like this is amazing you got to make this movie and so i called my producer and she 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 did my first uh two movies and she's like what were the first two life after beth and joshi yeah and uh, she's like, you're not going to believe this, but one of the investors who's invested in our last two movies, yeah. she's she's this Italian lady who's in Tuscany, and she's been asking for, for like four years for them to shoot in these medieval villages, and you're literally asking to shoot in a medieval village in Tuscany. And within like a month or two, we were in Tuscany scouting. Um, this woman, Marlena Marcucci, her family was like loaded from, I guess they're in the plasma business from the 20s or something, yeah. like in a pharmaceuticals. Plasma? Like okay. fake blood? Yeah. And um, so she, and then she brought MTV to, or she did some version of MTV for Italy. Her family's just loaded and her yeah. brother's a senator who runs the film commission. We were so crazily hooked up yeah. that, I mean, we didn't get, we didn't have to spend as much money as we normally would because we had access to, 
we had this one guy, Alessandro Berlucci, who was sort of our liaison. He was kind of a wine producer. And he knew all the mayors of these little towns that had all these, you know, relics and... Any relation to Bertolucci, Bertolucci? No relation at all. Yeah. It's just a common name. Yeah. I, I, I thought, know. I figured. That, yeah. But it's not. Yeah. And so it just, it, it kind of just snowballed really fast um, from this conversation I was having with Joe to we were actually in Italy on the ground scouting locations. And then a couple months later, we were actually were shooting it. And now how, how heavily scripted was it? Not that heavily. We it was maybe like a twenty five or twenty eight page outline. That so we were most, a lot of improvising. Dialogue was improvised. The story yeah. was not improvised, but right. a lot of the dialogue I mean, and the dialogue, the specific dialogue. So the the scenes were written out. What each person was going to say and yeah. what was happening in that scene. But I, after doing Joshi, that my, I sort of changed my process and and I, I start off as a writer. It's like a hardcore writer where yeah. you know you, you almost don't change a word at all. There's yeah. like no improvisation. And and you I, like the control of that. At that time. At that time? No, I just, it's just how you were taught to, to do stuff. Right. I actually don't. I, I don't mind. I like, the, I like freedom and I like things kind of like bleeding and, yeah. and sort of getting blurry. Yeah. And I also like how honest and authentic it sounds when people are saying their own lines instead of forcing someone to say something that doesn't sound real. Well, there's something uh, more present about it, certainly. Well, they're looking in each other's eyes and connecting, not knowing what the next person's going to say. So they're really you present. Yeah, 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 you yeah. have to. And that's for acting. That's the most important thing. It's not just waiting for the person to finish the line. Like you see like really bad movies, you know, like Ed Wood stuff. And you almost see like the person like kind of mouthing the other person's eyes waiting for their line. Like that's Some people me. have that weird habit. I know people that do that while you're talking in real time. Really? It's very odd. Yeah, my friend Sam does it. Like when I, if I'm just talking to you now, like finishing your words or not really finishing, but like just like a half a beat after saying what I'm saying. It's he's like very, processing it. He's got like I think so a delay. I think he's listening, and as he listens, he, he mouths it. It's Maybe he has like thing. some coping mechanism because he's got some ADD or something. He's like trying to figure out how to like. I, I th- I've just noticed it as being a weird habit. You know, I, I think some of it's finishing sentences, but some of it is just like, you know, kind of like the way that people listen. It's interesting. It is interesting. Yeah. So <laughs> I just I just found that that creates a more yeah. real dynamic. Right. And now when how much how much did you shoot? Like how many days? Well, I mean, how much footage did you shoot? The weird thing about digital and, and after working with Joe, yeah. I think the real challenge is is that you sort of have a, a, an embarrassment of riches usually. Usually, if you have a lot of time. We, yeah. were, we were under the gun. So, you know, we shot the whole thing in 20 days. Um, pretty much if, with the exception of just stuff that takes place in the convent, if you see a location, like for instance, a church or a field, or every single thing that takes place in that field was that day. Yeah. So sometimes we're stacking like eight or 10 scenes a day. Yeah. So sort of jamming through it. So we didn't have a lot of coverage. So, you know, generally it's the first three takes is sort of a master. Yeah. Or, you know, something kind of wider. Yeah. And then after that, we just punch in and we're pretty much replicating what we did. So now tell me exactly what you were like. I mean, I remember after we watched it that, you know, talking about it as a comedy or, or as you know, necessarily trying to put it into a genre that it was not something you'd, I, I didn't feel like you wanted to do that. I just don't want to do that ever. I mean, I think what happens, especially with the way media is sort of like uh, disseminated today, yeah. everything is marketing. Yeah. And so everything is labeling. Everything is sort of compartmentalizing. Right. And so your experience is almost pre-digested before you experience it. Yeah. And the only reason I'm doing this is to kind of do new oh, stuff. So it creates expectations. Creates expectations and it yeah. creates disappointments. Sure. Because if you're if you're like, oh, I'm going to see a it's comedy. The same thing, really, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it leads to yeah, it's one leading to uh, cause and effect. But I think when, especially with comedies, that that word comedy is yeah. so vague. And you know, there's like there's obviously like you know levels to it. There's dark comedy. There's broad comedy. All that kind of stuff. But I don't think of it as like I'm going to write a comedy or I'm going to write a dark comedy. I just I'm trying to make my own thing. And then what ends up happening is people try to sort of 
put their you know put, like figure out a way to describe it yeah and then that is not really the best you know well it's in, but you knew going in like that's what the interesting thing about that is however you want to describe it you know you've got you know the, the actors i just mentioned and then in bit parts you have uh you know fred armison mm-hmm. you have uh offerman uh yeah, these are you know comedic actors really comedic actors but for me a comedic actor is someone that can do comedy that isn't always doing comedy i know but like but they're known for that they're known for that right now yeah um but but like i'm curious to know like because like it was hard to sit there with you in you know looking at a rough cut well which wasn't really a rough cut other than i guess the credits but so it was pretty tight yeah and then to have to talk about it there's a sort of uh, you have to be i i I didn't i didn't really know you so it wasn't that i was diplomatic but i was certainly trying to figure out how to talk to you about it Mm -hmm. now now that you showed it for large audiences you know, what was the feedback? Was there something more specific that you found resonating with people? Did people say more than like, that was interesting or fun or, you know? I mean, the good thing, when you do it at Sundance, that's the, the, the your real first time anyone's yeah. seen it. So no one's bringing any expectations other than, like you said, the cast and... They're hoping uh, that something is different and weird and new and, and they, they're surprised. Completely. And to some extent, I'm not, you know, I'm not at a place now where I'm a, a recognizable brand. Right. But, when people have seen a couple of my movies, they know what you're getting into. It's not going to be a straight up comedy. Sure. And I, you know, I think one of the things that was really great is I was hearing a lot of people saying like, this isn't anything like I've seen before. You know, there's a couple of sort of, I think stale comparisons, you know, people I think automatically go to like Monty Python or Brooks because, you know, those guys were doing period piece comedies. Right. And so that is something that people can glom onto. Right. In terms of, I think, like in terms of the the craft or, or anything like that, I don't think anyone is that that kind of knows their way around stuff will will identify that as sort of like a marker. I think it's more just sort of an easy way to digest it. Now let's go back a little bit. I know we talked a little, but I, I don't. I, I mean, I retain some things. Uh-huh. But you grew up in Florida, in Miami, right in the middle of it. Mm-hmm. And what I I can't imagine. Miami's a chaotic place. Yeah, especially when I was growing up. Yeah, why? Because what was that? The eighties? Yeah, it was the eighties. I mean, I grew up uh, pretty much at the height of the cocaine boom, so yeah. I got to see a lot of that stuff. Like just people being gunned down in the streets and and insanity and coke money everywhere. Yeah. What I do mean, you remember about it? I mean, I remember my neighbor across the street um, was murdered. I remember a lot of my friends in school; their parents were busted for either being smugglers or I went to I went to private school for one year in eighth grade. Yeah, and then there was a bunch of actual drug deal. Like I got to go from pri- uh, public school where everyone's like, you know, the, the closest you got was like maybe their dad was a smuggler. Yeah, you know, like riding the, the boats at night. And then when I went to the private school, it's like their dads were the kingpins. Right, just for that one year. Yeah, but, yeah. I mean, everywhere you looked, there was coke, and it was. Yeah, it was pretty gross. And I mean, it was Miami Vice. Like that's Right, right. That was the time. Yeah. And you're and what did your dad do again? He's an attorney. Right, right. Yeah. And he, he yeah. But he, he stayed above it somehow. Sort of. I mean, <laughs> I, I don't like I might be speaking on a term, but I he's from my all my family's from New York. Like yeah. and the only reason we were in Miami is because my dad got a job down in, at a law firm and right after he graduated. And the guy whose firm that he got a job at yeah. was this guy named John Halliwell. Yeah. And this sounds like conspiracy theory shit, but the OSS is the precursor to the CIA. Right. So the OSS was started by John Halliwell and Wild Bill Donovan, I think uh-huh. his name is, and a couple of other guys. And so they were, you know, doing sort of, uh, you know, crazy stuff in Italy and Germany, like with partisans to uh-huh. try to take down the fascists. And then that ended up becoming the CIA. And so this guy ran the CIA for a little bit. He was a lawyer. And then after he left the CIA, he started this law firm, Halliwell and Melrose and DeWolf where my dad got a job 
And effectively, what they were doing was opening banks in the Bahamas, in the Caribbean, yeah. for the CIA and drug dealers. So they would right. take their drug dealer money and then use that for CIA operations. Uh huh. And then, I guess, towards the end of it- um, so it's like of, the Contra thing, right? We talked about it. Yeah, so yeah I, definitely the Contra right, thing. Yeah. And I think like a couple of the lawyers in that firm were busted for various- So know, they were running covert operations at the behest of the intelligence agencies outside of the parameters of government. In fact, the FBI came after John Halliwell because right. they saw what he was doing. And, you know, the CIA and the FBI are, are not best friends. And um, they, were, they were coming after him. And I guess the CIA kind of prodded them and, like, just leave him alone. Like, yeah, he's an older yeah. guy. He's about to pass away. This is, like, cool. Just let it go. <laughs> but, yeah, my dad, that's how he started off doing law. Is he still like, around? Yeah, he's still around. Like, he, uh, I know he deposed Somoza. Oh, oh and my God. he helped extradite Vesco, and he, he was involved in a lot of weird Latin American stuff. When you were a kid. When I was a kid, yeah. So you didn't quite grasp it, and you still no. don't, because yeah. you can't, or they'd have to kill you. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Keep my kid out of it. Yeah. Stay in the dark. And what did your mom do just during Teach this? her. Well, she, when I was a kid growing up, she was just a mom, yeah. and then she went back to teaching. How many brothers and sisters? One brother. Little yeah. brother. Two little brother. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Is he out here? No, he's a, a detective. He's a, a sergeant in the police in, in Florida. In Miami? in Miami? In Coral Gables, yeah, in Miami. That must be exciting. Yeah, it's definitely. I mean, he gets high-speed chases every once in a while. And I mean, I don't know if he's actually pulled his gun. I mean, Coral Gables is like Beverly Hills in sure, Miami. Sure, sure, yeah. So it's a lot of, you know, robbery. Are you guys close? Yeah, we're close. Oh, that's good. Yeah. And I mean, so we're you, super different, but yeah. And and you, like your grandparents were New Yorkers and that kind of thing, where you yeah. always tapped into New York, so you're yeah. always going up there? Yeah. Because how do you, you know, in order to be a kid that had your interest, something had to spark you. In like, terms of like film like, stuff? Well, just like, you know, being a 14-year-old who finds Eno, I find that's a specific thing. That like, you, you know, because cause I'm the same way, and, and I don't know whether it was... My mother was an artist and, you know, and I always felt that that was important. Mm -hmm. Like there, there's something that hits you when you're younger where you're like, you know, art is where it's at. Whatever the fuck it is. Yeah. You know, being outside of whatever this norm is yeah. to find truth and to find yourself is, is, is something you don't have much control over. Either it happens to you or it doesn't. And usually there's somebody that just delivers the message to you somehow. Yeah. I think I got lucky. I had a bunch of those things kind of happen to me. So, yeah. Like what? Um, I remember when I was like 11 we had a uh, way cable in, yeah. in my in my bedroom yeah. so i was always watching tv but i was watching movies all the time right and um one time a clockwork orange was on tv right and i, I caught it in the middle of it and my dad walked in and he's like oh you're watching that fucking weird movie i'm like what is this and he goes i think that's a clockwork orange and i'm like this is crazy and so the next day we went to the video <laughs> store and i'm like dad like what's another crazy movie i want another crazy movie and he's like i don't know eight and a half is supposed to be crazy i don't know <laughs> and so we rented eight and a half and i watched it and like, that's kind of crazy that's what i mean he just for him it was like just weird movies right. like it's just this one genre right, right sure and um yeah so, that's what made me want to do film so you rented eight and a half i read, rented eight and a half it blew me away i mean i was like probably too little to fully grasp it but i knew something it was sort of like you know stuff where you're listening to it and it's pushing you in an uncomfortable space and you can either like shy away from it and turn it off or kind of give into it and sort of see what happens and just trust that this artist knows what they're doing and that's what i did and because well, you're a kid and they're grown up so why would you question the artistic integrity of either of those things at like what how old were you 11, 11? yeah, yeah. like this felini guy's a hack this, gonna... yeah I, I definitely didn't have that sort of critical ability well that's interesting because both of those movies visually are so you know unique and fucking you know pow you know they really punch you in the head yeah like eight and a half even if you don't know what's going on you're gonna be like what the fuck yeah, you're just you can just be absorbed by the style of it. Yeah, you can't. You don't even have to listen to it. But the themes are obviously the where it's at. Yeah, know? and I think also my mom 
right around that time too, she was a really big fan of the Metamorphosis by Kafka. And she was like, you should read this. And I read it and that blew me away. I was too young doing this stuff. Like I, I was watching radar movies when I was like six or something. Yeah, like yeah. I definitely was, you know. So you read Metamorphosis. I mean, I remember reading that and I, and I still couldn't grasp it completely. Yeah, I, I remember mean, reading it and thinking it was actually funnier than it was supposed to be. I was, I thought it was supposed to be kind of sad and messed up, and then I was like, "This is actually kind of there's yeah, the guy's humor a bug. There. The guy's yeah. a bug, but yeah. sort of just the matter of fact dryness of it. I, I was really drawn to. So those that was the that was the trinity: uh, Kubrick, uh, Fellini, and uh, Kafka. Yeah, that blew your mind initially. Yeah, for and sure. And you're like, "There's something else out there." I remember Time Bandits was a really big thing for me when I was a kid. I don't know if you know that Terry Gilliam movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the end of it really kind of messed me up in a good way. Yeah. Where, you know, his parents, they have the, the it's like a, a toaster and yeah. the, the demon's head is inside of it. Right. And he's like, don't touch the head. And they touch it, like just defying him. And then they explode. And I remember how dark that was. I'm like, you can get away with that kind of stuff. <laughs> like you can have the parents just die at the end like that. And yeah, that definitely stayed with me. You sure you can get away with it. I mean, is it going to be a popular movie? I don't know. Yeah. But so, so then what, what do you do to begin your artistic journey? Do you pick, you know, music or, 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 or drawing or what? Where all of it. it I mean, I was drawing all the time. I was painting. I took painting you classes. Did? Yeah. Um, so you were like, I'm going to find it. Something what's going to stick. Yeah, it wasn't even like I'm intentionally trying to be... I didn't even think I wanted to be an artist. I knew when I was 11 or 12, I can't remember when I was like, I just want to be a director. Yeah. Um, But before that, it was always just, you know, I I don't have a good singing voice, but I like playing music. Like, I'm not good at any individual instrument, but I'm like decent at all of them. Like, I can like play drums or guitar or whatever. And uh, yeah, I was always writing. It just sort of seemed like film was the thing that kind of brought all these things together that I had like a sensitivity to. Right. And when you went to high school, what what sort of what, what were the kids you were gravitating towards? I mean, because I mean, we went to high school. When did you graduate high school? Ninety five, right? So I graduated in eighty one. It's a whole different mm-hmm. fucking world. So so by ninety five, there were, you definitely had enough like minded people around. I would think. Yeah, and my school was a super outlier too. Because I don't want to get in trouble, but the the principal at the time, yeah. um, there were rumors that he was a coke dealer. Yeah. And he actually helped me skip school a couple of times. Like it was a completely corrupt. It was almost like the way it was completely a Bill Clinton style school where it was definitely corrupt and sketchy, but it was ultimately like utilitarian and for the greater good. Right. And so I would, it was really like, it could almost be like a TV show the way it went down. Like the jocks and the the drama kids and the nerdy kids and like the artsy kids, everyone was cool with each other. It wasn't like bullying. And right. So it was like a really kind of, and it was, I went to school with like 5,000 people. Like it was a massive public high school. Yeah, I had a big one too, like 3,400. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there was definitely like, you know, gangs and fights and stuff, but there was an overall vibe of like, we're kind of in this together, which I didn't exist for any of the other classes. It was just my year. I think we somehow figured something out that was huh. kind of cool and the teachers were pretty cool there's just one guy mr hood who he actually passed away like 10 years ago but he he started a cinematography class so we would actually make movies in class and watch movies i would go see i remember i saw kozlowski's red with him and um you know he was always making me dubs of you know the the todd Haynes superstar and oh yeah he, yeah. he gave me blow up on vhs and oh. he just gave me some really cool movies um he was a big fellini fan and so and he was also a really big Bowie fan. We like tripped out on like Low, and he's he was awesome. Did you ever like watch any of those other ones? What Red Desert? Yeah. Ooh, I, Passenger. I, yeah, they're hard movies. They're great. I just remember like just wanting it to make sense. Uh huh. 
like I had this expectation, which it seems like you were able to sort of jump over fairly young just by virtue of what you were taking in, where where if I didn't get it or it didn't make sense to me that I was missing something, mm -hmm. that I couldn't just take it in. You can just have like a holistic experience. No. Yeah. Could you? Yeah, because I think I, I'm able to zone out sometimes yeah. and I don't get kind of caught. I'll watch movies multiple times. I'll watch a lot of you know, movies more than one time and just kind of like let it wash over me sure. sometimes and just... Yeah. Yeah, pick up the pieces. I, I was I, one thing I learned about the way you should see art isn't you. You don't go to a gallery and see every single painting and just stare at it and give it an assigned amount of time. Yeah, you just sort of drift to what draws your attention and then focus on that. And right. You don't, you're, you don't. You're not doing a chore when you're watching art. You're experiencing something, and whatever resonates with you, you should kind of go with that. And also, like sometimes I have found that that things that I, I that may have caught my eye or resonated with me when I was younger, or even if I didn't quite get it or like the artist, whatever medium it was, mm -hmm. that as I get older and I go back to things, I'm like, oh. Yeah. Now it, yeah. I mean, I that just happened with Roxy music. I, I love Roxy music, especially the early stuff. Yeah. Speaking about, you know, but the later stuff, I always, I think I had like a, a reaction to kind of reject it because they rejected, you know, and I kind of was defensive for Yeah. Him. And also, there was a lot of sort of suave suits and kind yeah, it's of a like little rom cheesy. Rom yeah. Yeah. But it's beautiful. I oh, love it. That's great. It's so good. So, yeah. I don't know if it was like, there was, there was, a, yeah, there's a problem with Brian Ferry, you know, in, in, in terms of like taking him in yeah. as a, as an entertainer and as an artist. Like, there's something about his stature that's sort of like, eh. He's almost like trying too hard to be charismatic. Something. It's like Bowie. It's just effortless. And with <laughs> yeah, Brian right. Ferry, it's like, he's like, check me out. <laughs> yeah. Right. It was, it, he's I like, I'm this, smooth. Yeah. I had the same reaction yeah. to him. Yeah. Like with Leonard Cohen, like I'm mm -hmm. just now, like it's now connecting with me. Oh, he's connected with me from the beginning. He's yeah. like one of my all time people. Because be, what was it? Just, be, it's so sparse to it's me. so I mean, I love to start like, like McCabe and Ms. Miller is really yeah. one of my favorite movies. So good. Ever. Like, I love those songs, but like, you know, to take on the whole Leonard Cohen catalog. Yeah. At the first, at the time I watched McCabe and Miss Miller, I just couldn't, I couldn't grasp it. I love melancholy stuff. Yeah, I, me too. But I, I still couldn't like, I just, there was something about a lot of it that I didn't quite get until not too long ago. That movie, like, like the more I watch that, it just blows me away every fucking time. Oh, it's so good. I mean, that's to some extent what I was trying to do with Little Hours, which is, you know, find a historical period and kind of just tell it in a really contingent way instead of having it hit all those like points that you're expecting it to hit kind of just, it's fallible people and just sort of watch it play out i mean that's obviously altman who's a master doing his thing yeah but um yeah that movie is super inspirational it's like it's 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 an, an insane movie to to sort of like i i feel like i need to watch it again yeah it's it's i could watch that movie and i it's I, so... all the movies i could watch you know california split yeah that's probably my all-time favorite movie I could watch that movie every week. Really? Yeah. His movies for me are just the easiest things to watch. They're just like the language he's speaking. It's just, I digest it instantly and I just love it. Like, I love it. Yeah. 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 And in, in, in the, if he picks the right period, like in McCabe and Mrs. Miller, that juncture of commerce and the wilderness mm -hmm. and the, you know, the death of the old West, mm -hmm. it was so fucking dense. Like it, but yet, you know, you can watch it casually but, you know, if you just want to investigate, you know, that guy who's building that church yeah. and really you can write a paper on that. And it's also like McCabe is that a general Western would have McCabe as the gunslinger. 
and we don't know his if, exploits. It, we don't know how talented he is until the end of the movie. In a minute, in yeah. a second. Yeah, but up until then, you're sort of just watching this guy kind of hiding out. And also, but he's also like not only a flawed character, but bordering on a comic character. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I had a discussion with somebody about the choice of the derby. That he's wearing? Yeah. Yeah. Because that that's a comedic hat on some level. Right. And that he was it's sort like of- It's a fancy hat. It's a fancy hat, but it's also a chaplain hat. Mm-hmm. So, you, you know, when you start thinking about his bumbling around and his inability to connect with this woman, who, you yeah. know, and his mumbling to himself, that there is there is a, 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 a an almost slapstick nature to him. And it's, it's so tragic as well. Like his inability to connect with Julie Christie completely. You know, yeah. the fact that they're-, they're, they're simpatico but there's a limit to how far they're willing to go and the sort of unsavory choices they've made in their lives have sort of I guess metastasized into who they are that doesn't allow them to connect so you the first time you really learned about film in terms of practical in terms of technical things was in high school with the cinematography class yeah I mean I was always messing around with video cameras and super 8 cameras do you have that stuff still yeah you have your movies yeah I still have some yeah did you digitize them not yet no no I actually like how they're falling apart it's kind of amazing (laughs) <laughs> yeah what would you shoot like what kind of short like, films was it, was it stop action stuff like no, no it was drive. always dramatic com- really? comedic you know like like stuff with people not not a stop motion animation just you know like little i remember when i was a, a kid i was watching nickelodeon yeah and this is like a stupid story but um there there was a show and i can't remember the name of it like yeah. so this is not really like a great reference but there was a show where it's like a bunch of people in leotards would get on top of each other and make shapes like they would turn into like elephants or whatever right. just by working together as a team yeah and so they would always ask for suggestions which would basically be like hey send us uh, a thing and we'll you know be a tank or something and then they could do it. i sent them this like four page and this is when i was like five or six years old i had my dad help me but like a courtroom drama yeah and they're just like we can't you know this is not gonna happen so i was always trying to do something a little bit more dramatic i think than probably like i was capable of doing yeah yeah a courtroom drama yeah and they're like this is not exactly for us and they sent me like a black beauty vhs tape as like a consolation prize but yeah we, we don't act we just sort of make Disney, shapes with our the, bodies yeah 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 did you did you picture them in your courtroom drama doing what oh yeah they no do? i was so into it i was you know because like i think you know my dad's a lawyer so i was looking up to him and i probably wanted to be a lawyer at some yeah. point and then i was like this is a, a great story i'm gonna tell and they just were not having it so what was the first piece of uh of uh cinema that you put together that you thought had you know was solid that i directed myself yeah um i, was know, it I mean before like, nyu yeah i mean like, i i did a short film to get into nyu yeah that was it was uh with my teacher mr hood who i referenced before um about a kid who realizes his parents are cannibals uh-huh and that was pretty fun yeah that was like the and it was like the most i guess uh professionally done thing i did a, a contest for twinkies they, they did a they asked us to do like a, um, or they asked us, they asked people to do uh, like a short piece for, for like something that had to do with Twinkies. Yeah. And I did some random ass, like uh, mixed together a bunch of short film tropes, you know, like Fellini and Bergman and um, Truffaut. Yeah. When I was in high school and we got second place, I think. Second. So we got a lot of Twinkies for that. What won first? I don't know. It wasn't like, there was no internet back then. So it wasn't like you really were able to like do that. I feel right. like to do that kind of research, you'd have to go real deep. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Before the internet. Yeah. Is, do you know a guy that can get me the tape of the winner? Yeah. Right. So when you went to NYU, when you moved to New York, you, you know, was that the big, um, like, what were you setting out to do? I wanted to be a filmmaker and I wanted to not go to a campus school. I didn't, I wanted to sort of be in the world. Growing up in Miami is great. You yeah. know, the beaches are amazing. All my friends are great, um, but I just couldn't wait to get out of there. Like it, it was to me like a, 
not a cesspool, but it was, it was definitely like something that was limiting. Yeah. Yeah. There was no cultural, cultural element. Like I think now that you have, uh, what do you call it? Uh, Art Basel and Wynwood is kind of becoming a thing and you know, the design district there's, there is an element now of, but back then it was, you know, everything was Romero Brito. I don't know if you know that artist, but he's like a, a, a bad version of Keith Haring that's really colorful. Right. There's a lot of money, but not a lot of taste. Not a lot of taste. It's it's like LA minus the mountains and minus the entertainment and culture. So right. You just get all the negative stuff. You get, literally get people driving around Lamborghinis and Ferraris, you know, with yeah. mesh shirts. And yeah. so like I was looking to get out of that and go to a place. I mean, New York for me always was a place I wanted to live. My parents are from there. You know, every, every piece of film that i really family there yes i'll family there yeah Yeah. and did you then where you're like was there anyone when you went to college did you oh yeah i mean all my cousins and my aunts and uncles live there i mean pretty much everyone in my family was in new york except my grandparents and my parents everyone my everyone else was up there so all right so you go to nyu and what do you what do you what do you learn i mean more than anything it's just how to how to be on a set you know they don't teach you how to get a job they don't teach you you know how to write stuff they they just teach teach you the formats how it breaks down how it breaks down and and how to do it not not specifically what to do yeah and so for me that was really invaluable i don't i don't i didn't want people telling me how to make stuff i mean what to make yeah i always had an idea of what i wanted to go for but how do you how to load a camera how to light something you know how to record sound (laughs) all that stuff is really (laughs) i I have a good memory so i'll remember all that stuff like i ended up shooting everyone's movies in school so how to format a script how to format a script yeah Yeah. what program to use yeah all that stuff was like super important but i never was you know i I never thought of it as a lot of people i know that went to school they're kind of like talked down on it yeah as if it was like i don't understand why i thought it was great like to be able to live in new york city as that at that age yeah to be anonymous you know kind of blend in but also be able to i mean then that was in the 90s and there was a lot of really cool creative stuff happening especially with independent film and who are your classmates who are your teachers um do anyone we know I had a teacher for Italian cinema called Antonio Munda. Yeah. He did the, um, he ended up doing the, the, um, commentary on eight and a half, the, uh-huh. the, the, the criterion version. I had a couple of kids that I went to school with that kind of became stuff like, um, Jonathan Liebsman. He directed clash of the Titans or one of the clash. Of the, oh yeah. Were you shooting stuff? I was shooting stuff for sure. Who were you using as actors? Any New York uh, people that, you know, you used actually again? Rob Delaney. Do you mm-hmm. know him? So sure. he, we went to school together. I know him since I was 18. So he was in a lot of my stuff. Like he was my guy. Robin, so you knew him through the whole crack up. I knew him. Well, he actually, you talking about when he got into his accent stuff. Yeah. He, he was leaving my house. Well, he, so we were hanging out that night and uh, we had a friend, Uzai, who he grew up with and they were kind of hanging out at my place. It was like two in the morning. I, I didn't really, I mean, I was too young. I was like 22, I think at the time. So yeah. I wasn't, I didn't see all the warning signs of what was going on. But um, yeah, he left my house and went to a friend's house who was having a party at two in the morning. And he was one of those guys like that would bring over a six pack for himself. Right. But, you know, we're that, when you're that young, everyone's just kind of partying and doing yeah, stupid yeah. shit. You knew they're like, wow, that dude can drink a lot, but you didn't connect yeah, it to like, not he's a problem. Yeah, the weekend before it got a little dark because we, I was doing this documentary on, you know, World's Strongest Man competition. Yeah. I found this pocket of guys up in Sacramento that were trying to do the same thing, that were pro, trying to go pro. And um, he came up with me and helped me like kind of work on this documentary. And he was drinking a lot. And then uh, it got a little bit dark. And then we we uh, came back, and then he left to go to this party basically at two in the morning. I'm like, "What are you doing?" And I guess he started drinking and blacked out, and then yeah. just took off at five. Drove in the it into the water building or something. He took a bunch of meters out. And yeah, no, I mean I've talked to him, you know, and he's yeah. sober a long time. But you know, we went into depth about that event. Yeah, no, that was. I mean, I've never seen something as transformative 
for a person is that. I mean, that it's it, there is a chapter shift. Like things change. Of after course, that. yeah. He, he got sober. <laughs> he got well, not, but it, I mean, it, on all fronts. Like he he had a lot of stuff going for him. Like he was he started getting casting callbacks and things were happening when and, you were like twenty two. When he was twenty two, and then you know after that, you know his knees and his elbows were busted, and he couldn't go out and. You know, it's like when you first get into AA, you get yeah. you become like a like a, a, a true disciple. You know, right. it's like there's no Catholic, like a, a new Catholic, or whatever. Yeah. And so, you know, it, it became his whole life. Yeah. And then, you know, I think slowly he sort of got got a little bit more balanced and stuff. Right. But I mean, he's one of my favorite people in the world. And you and, used him in college and movies. Yeah, he's in my first movie for a second in Life After Bath. Uh huh. Yeah, and, and I always want to work with him, and I love him. Yeah, he's doing well. Yeah, he's doing great. So you did how? You did one big film in college, or short films, or I did a bunch of short films. Yeah, and my thesis film didn't happen. My my teacher didn't turn in my insurance form, and yeah. they just disappeared like two days before we were supposed to start shooting. Your so. teacher disappeared. Yeah, this total jackass. Like he he was supposed to pretty much they give you an allotment for yeah. film, like you know equipment and stuff. He. You, you got the insurance for that. He, but you end up getting other film equipment, like you rent out from rental houses, and you need the insurance form in order because you're a student. Like, no one's going to cover your shit. Yeah. And he never turned it in and then, like, went AWOL. And so NYU felt bad and they're like, hey, why don't you just come back for another year and we'll guarantee you, you know, the, an allotment? But, like, they wanted me to spend 40 grand to go back to, to do senior year, year of again. And it was just. Why would you do that? Yeah, exactly. It's like, I don't know. Yeah. So you left, you left film school and came right out here? Came around here. I started working for Robert Zemeckis. Um, what movie was he doing then? What Lies Beneath and Castaway. I got really lucky because I, I, a friend of mine that had moved out here showed me what his resume was, which was like ridiculous. It said where he was born and stuff, and I didn't, I didn't know what you're supposed to do on a resume. Who so does? I, so I put down that I was born in Miami, and it turns out the guy who runs Jack, uh, this guy Jack Rapke, who yeah. runs runs uh, Zemeckis' company, he was from Miami and went to NYU and thought he was, I was like his second coming, so he hired me, and so I got to work on. Well, Lies Beneath and Castaway was like a PA and it was really fun. You were on Castaway as a PA? Yeah. Holy not shit. not in not in Fiji or Bora Bora. Right. It was just the the LA stuff. Uh-huh. Yeah. And so you're right in it. Yeah, I was right Huge. in it. Yeah, and like I grew up, I was a big time Zemeckis fan. Like I love Back to the Future and Who Framed sure. Roger Rabbit. Yeah. I really loved used cars for some reason. I don't yeah. know why. Used cars with Kurt Russell. Kurt Russell, yeah. Oh yeah. So good. Did Zemeckis take a liking to you? Yeah, he was really sweet. Like he, whenever I would go, I mean, I was pretty much just doing go, you know, go for runs kind of sure. stuff. But he would always let me kind of come and sit and watch them work. I remember one time he's like, "Hey, do me a favor, go get um, Stephen at the gate and bring him to me." I'm like, "Great." And there's a guy named Steve Starkey who's his producer. Yeah, who I'm just assuming I'm going to go get. This is like literally day one of my job, and I see this like turquoise uh, Explorer pull up and it's Steven Spielberg. Yeah, so I have to take Steven Spielberg to him and like, <laughs> it, I mean, that was like mind blowing. I remember Steven Spielberg was giving me like a pep talk and you know like, oh, really? Bob's a great guy and you're in great hands and all this stuff. And it was just so surreal. And and so, but they knew you were lit up and intelligent, right? Yeah, but that's not the best combo for like an office worker, like or I, a PA. Sometimes yeah, PA. it can work against you. Like I'm sitting there, like looking at all the film stuff, and they're like, "Well, can you go get the dry cleaning and like make sure I have enough oranges and you know make sure I have my petty cash?" Like that's that's like your your job is, right? But like I'm like, okay, cool. But I, I just want to sort of stay here for like a little bit longer. So. Yeah. And how long did you work for Zemeckis? Like almost a year, and then I started working with David Russell. So, so you're 21, 20, 22. Where are you living? In Los Feliz. I've, I've lived in Los Feliz the whole time I've been in LA. Well, that's a pretty good move. Yeah. And you're like connecting with people of your age and like you got a crew out here. Yeah. And like everybody was doing their PA work or getting their little breaks here and there. Yeah. Like it, who were your crew? Uh, a lot of NYU kids. Um, some, 
I hung out with a lot of actors, honestly. Like, yeah. I don't know why. It's always I'm friends with tons of actors. And yeah, it's like fun watching them sort of like kind of find their way or not find their way and like become pastry chefs and stuff and just sort of like find their own thing. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but it was definitely fun. So you go right from Zemeckis to David O. Russell. How'd you get the job with David O. Russell? I applied to a job list ad for a director who was looking for an assistant editor Mm -hmm. and I know how to edit. So I applied and then I met him and we had like a, you know, he interviewed me and it was, I, I was actually putting Flooring with Disaster on Laserdisc which is like super dating it. But I was putting the laser disc on as he called to say, will you come in and meet with me? I had no idea who it was. And so he was working on some online documentary that ended up nothing, nothing ever came out of it. But um, I would just start editing stuff for him. So by the time when you started working for him, he had made Spanking the Monkey. He had made Flirting with Disaster. And he had just finished Three Kings. Flirting for, with Disaster is a great movie. It's amazing. It's perfect. Yeah. It's some of the funniest shit ever. Yeah, he does, I don't know that people talk about it enough. And there's yeah. some great acting in it, too. I mean, that's my. I think that's my favorite movie of his. That's with Ben Stiller. Ben Stiller, Tia Leone, Leone, Richard Josh Jenkins. Josh Brolin's in it. Brolin, a, Alan Alda, Lily Tomlin. Yeah. It's like, a, it's Mary an Tom ensemble Moore. comedy. Yeah. And, you know, it was like, a, it, it's almost a genre movie in a way. Mm-hmm. Right? It's like a road trip, um, finding yourself movie. Right. And he's finding out who his parents are. Right. He's adopted. Yeah. Right. I, I got to watch that again. Oh, it's so great. Because like, you know, Spanking the Monkey, I've watched a few times. Flirting with Disaster a couple of times. I like in Three Kings, I, I watch whenever possible. I should probably own it because there's something so there, th- that movie to me is sort of a masterpiece somehow. Definitely. I mean, it's, it's, you know, talking about not having a real genre, you know, it's an action movie. It's political. It's funny. It's, it's got pathos. You know, yeah. it's, it's, it's shot really well, you know, it's, it's whip smart. Yeah. It's really amazing movie. And so time, I mean, I guess it's timely. I mean, I would say timeless cause it's applying to everything. And you know what I remember about it all, always in, you know, getting back to blood and guts and getting back to satire, which I think three Kings probably is mm-hmm. in a way. Definitely. I would definitely category. satire. I mean, yeah. the army and sure oil is that, um, is that, that weird cutaway to the inside of the body. Yeah, you know, David thought that CSI ripped him off with that, you know, because it shows the sepsis, you know, where the, the bolts right, going right, in and right. you start seeing the effect of, yeah, he was pretty convinced that CSI ripped that off. Well, whatever he may have been convinced of or not, that I thought that as a specifically satirical device that, that you know, there there's something, you know, that goes beyond humanizing by just making that choice to do that, by mm-hmm. taking the time to show a bullet entering inside the body yeah. that is so like, you know, specific but, you know, the humanity of it is disturbing. I mean, it's like the, the, I guess, the more grounded version of when Austin Powers, when when he runs the guy over with the steamroller, and then you yeah. see the wife get the call, of the, hench, the henchman's wife getting a call, he died, and she's, like, super distraught. Yeah. Which is, like, you never go that far. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and, and that, like, you know, but it also, it's sort of like, you know, it's just the, the raw goods. Yeah. The animal it's like, goods. like, this is what's happening. Right. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah it, it gets glossed over. I mean, I, I remember I had a panic attack one time when I saw Avatar. You know the movie Avatar? Yeah. I saw that and I started tripping out on the fact that you're seeing thousands of people die and every one of them has a life. You know, yeah. I think it's what's it called, Sonder, when you when you sort of project yourself into all these different right, lives. Right, right, yeah. And then just the the sheer, I guess, number of people that are dying in the lives that are, I just, I like literally lost it when I watched that movie. I'm like, this is a fucking nightmare. I hate this. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, when I have those feelings, it is overwhelming, especially if you have you know, uh, uh, an Eno brain, uh-huh. which is sensitive <laughs> yeah. that, you know, the amount of anxiety available, if you open yourself up to those possibilities is like, you know, can be, uh, annihilating, yeah. mentally annihilating. Yeah. How'd you pull out? 
How did I pull out of Avatar? Yeah, of the uh, panic attack. Oh, yeah. I I just realized I never had a panic attack before. It was literally my only panic attack. I, I knew I was having a panic attack. And I know when you're having a panic attack, you're supposed to realize you have a panic attack and breathe and it will end. You're not having a heart attack and you're not right. going to die. Yeah. But it took a while. You know, it was definitely like oh my God. a nightmare. So what did you, what would you learn, you know, with David O. Russell, who is notoriously um, difficult? Well, when I came on with him, we, we were basically tight we were super tight i mean he took I, you under his wing took you under his wing but at the same time treated me as an equal uh-huh. which was insane because i was tw- i was like 23 and how old and is he he's he's 20 years older than me okay so he you know he had done four movies i guess at that point uh-huh or three movies i don't know if it was three movies and he's a genius super genius and um i mean so talented and i like that time when we were writing together to me is like one of the highlights of my life because he was we we were on the same wavelength and he's so talented and he just taught me how to sort of have an ear for things. How did you get to a point where he said, let's write together? You know, you're entering as what, a, a glorified PA or? But, I mean, I was an assistant, uh-huh. assistant editor, uh-huh. assistant editor, assistant. Um, yeah. What really happened was I, I mean, this is like, this is, I don't know if this is like too much, but I had this weird dream um, this one night that I was driving in a, in a car and I saw this big uh, white sphere and I, it looked like I knew it was a motorcycle and I yeah. clipped it and I got like, I made a little like dent on it. Yeah. And I was like, oh shit. And as I was driving, I saw a, a cop behind the thing and I saw him put his lights on. I'm like, oh shit. And then just as I look at my rear mirror, I saw this green truck lose control and hit me. And I was like, great. Now the cops going to be more focused on that accident than the little like thing I did. Yeah. So the next couple of days I was super paranoid about getting in a car accident. Um, cut to two days later I was at Franklin Western in a stoplight and I looked at my rear mirror and I saw a green truck lose control and hit me from behind and I got out to like deal with the accident and there was all this dust in the air and some of it got in my eye whatever so I went to David's house told him what happened everyone was like tripping out about this dream because I had told my girlfriend at the time about the dream and then like literally got hit by a green truck and David was like so fixated on this what is the white thing that I hit um, you know this white sphere and then as the day went on, my eye got really messed up and I had a, his wife took me to the eye doctor and it turns out I had an ulcerated cornea because I wear contacts and I guess yeah. like a piece of dust gun in there and start eating it away and I would have gone blind. And then we realized like me like knocking off the cap of the white thing was my eye. And it was just this whole crazy thing. So for like two weeks, I, I had this ulcerated cornea. So I had to put these drops in every hour in the hour and I couldn't really sleep and I was losing my shit. And I think he felt really bad. So he started telling me about some of these ideas he wanted to work on, told me about the Huckabee's idea there was another couple of things that we worked on and then we started like spitballing ideas at me and we had like, a, especially when we were doing the editing stuff, we had like a real easy sort of rapport in terms of creative stuff. Well, like you were editing that online thing he was working on? Yeah. Cause like when you're missing a scene or when you have a scene that leads to another scene, it's not exactly working. You got to find the glue between it. So yeah. I would start pitching ideas, you know, and he, and so he just started kind of spitballing ideas off me and then we just started writing together. And then I don't know, I was like 24, 25 and then I was working with him, you know, nonstop. We wrote four scripts together. You wrote Huckabees? Huckabees. We did like a, a Meet the Fockers version. Like a Meet, is it Meet the Fockers? A meet the, meet the Fockers. Yeah. And then we did um, this script that I love that I think is the best thing we wrote about this dermatologist who like joins basically the forum, the yeah. forum. Yeah. And then, you know, becomes a mess. And I can't remember the other thing we did. Never made it to screen? No. New Line got it and it's sort of in turnaround. So, but yeah, he- It's still in, in the works? No, there's no way it's going to happen. They oh. have too much money against it. But we, uh, yeah, we just had like a really good way of working. Like we would sit next to each other and just pass the laptop between each other. And it was like, we shared a brain and I just learned so much from him. Like what? I mean, the main thing I learned is just sort of how to juggle characters at the same time, you know, how to create 
distinct characters, put them in a situation. He calls them confabs, like confabulations. Yeah. And sort of just like let that scene play out. And so I've always been drawn to like chaos and, you know, large groups. And But I don't like just arbitrary chaos. I like where you kind of are able to track, like you can actually parse through it and say like, oh, this is that attack and this is what this person's doing and this is where their motivation is and how it all kind of collides and that it actually works out in a way that right. is chaos, but there is a logic to it. Right. And so I think... Um, well, you Huckabees know, is all about that in a way. Yeah, I mean, ensemble comedies of, yeah. you know, people coming together and crashing into each other and just all the stuff that happens. Is, yeah. So I learned a lot about that um, from him. And you saw a movie all the way through. I mean, you guys wrote Huckabees and, mm-hmm. and then you were on set with it. For the most part, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, that that's a difficult movie. I like that movie a lot. Mm-hmm. And I don't know why necessarily. <laughs> You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I watch it and I like right when the first time I saw it, I'm like, well, this is like absurdism. This is like a Eugene Ionesco play. This is a farce of some kind. And I don't know that I could completely understand it. I don't under, you know, like w- w- in my recollection, the thing that triggered my my uh, analysis of it was that Marky Mark's a fireman. Mm-hmm. I don't know why, but he just showed up as a fireman. And I, I what was the construction? What was the intent? I mean, David had a dream about a detective following him around in his everyday life. So he wanted to do something where a person is sort of charting your every move and sort of doing an existential analysis instead of, you know, a legal or I guess right anything like that. A philosophical analysis. A philosophical analysis, but, you know, a metaphysical yeah. philosophical analysis. Right. And um, he kind of pitched that idea to me and I was always drawn to philosophy. I read a lot of philosophy and studied it a little bit and I've always been interested in that. And I think the timing of it was... Uh, auspicious in terms of um sort of the zeitgeist you know a lot of people were coming out of 9-11 and there was this shift i think in terms of comedy especially with sincerity where after 9-11 it was okay to be sincere again i think coming out of the 90s everything was so ironic and so glib and so sort of harsh and acidic and Mm -hmm. i think all of a sudden people had a moment to kind of come together and you know the reason why um Wahlberg's character is a firefighter is obviously 9-11 right and so he's the kind of person who up until that point would have just sort of been coasting through life and kind of doing his thing and then all of a sudden someone that you don't associate with having deeper thoughts and sort of going deep not that firefighters don't have deep thoughts but in general we sort of don't attach that our idea of them changed yeah our idea changed and then you know especially after the way it all kind of played out then we go to war and like why did we go to war was it because we want justice is because we're just it's socioeconomic petrodollar stuff like what what are we doing yeah and so I think a lot of people have those questions, and I think it, it kind of, and there was also I, I don't want to call it new age because I, I kind of it sort of uh, I think cheapens it a little bit, but there is sort of a metaphysical sort of openness that sort of occurring started occurring around that time as well. You know, you saw the the how yoga started blowing up, and you know people were more conscious about their diets and stuff like that. it was. Everyone was just sort of taking stock, I think, after that, and it, yeah. it, it, the reverberations. I think we're still feeling them, obviously, but um, yeah, at that time it sort of felt like that's that was what we were kind of connecting with, and David. And I, well, David specifically was really on a Buddhist path, you know, at that point. He's, I don't think he is anymore, but, you know, we, we, we were studying Zen and we got way into Zen and sort of these ideas were sort of percolating. And I think we just created this sort of mishmash, um, like a pastiche of all these different things that we we're like calling from. Right. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't, that, I mean, the craziest thing is that was a studio film. Like, you, you, like, yeah. can you imagine? Yeah. Like at one point that was going to be a Warner Brothers movie. Yeah. Like Warner Brothers was supposed to make that movie, and then they just like obviously like were smart and you know for them like that doesn't make any sense. But who yeah. ended up making it? Searchlight, Fox Searchlight. And how did you guys feel about it? Um, 
I think it's cool. I mean, I haven't seen it since it came out. Yeah. You know, like it it was definitely there's what you intend to make and then there's what ends up being made. Yeah. And I mean, truthfully, I wasn't on set at the end of it. You so, guys had a falling out? A little bit, yeah. Yeah. I mean, because I, you know, there's, you know, I've heard rumors about, you know, what happened on set and, you know, that, you know, he kind of lost his mind and whatever. Yeah. And I, you know, I don't know that you can speak to that, but whatever, you guys grew estranged? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to get too gossipy, but yeah, we we uh, grew estranged. Uh huh. Yeah, and still, yeah. I yeah. mean, it was you know, it was it was a lot of stuff happened. A lot of, a lot of crazy shit went down. So like, it, it's not. I always respect him and love him for who he is because he's a true visionary and a rebel. And it's it's hard to sort of separate someone's art and their soul and their actions. Yeah. Um. But you know, he's a true artist and he's a super genius and when we were writing together, it was one of the highlights of my life. Like I remember one time we were, um, he got an award from Amherst cause he went to Amherst and we got wind of, um, Antonin Scalia was giving a, a, a speech to this, um, like pre-law class there. I can't remember the name. I think the guy's name was Arkies. The teacher's name was Arkies. He was like a pre-law or whatever it was. So we snuck in and, um, it was you know horrifying because he's not my guy yeah and Scalia was going off about the constitution and how you know you're not supposed to obviously his whole take on it is it's it's not a living breathing document it's it's a, a set of laws that are very clear and you know you you think about what the framers were thinking of and just go apply that don't he's an originalist yeah you don't you don't think of it as something you can interpret because you can't right. interpret a law right because then anyone can interpret a law and subjective so anyway, he was saying like back then a felony was if, if you committed a felony it was instant death and he goes, uh, not like now. So that's pretty effective, huh? And it was like, so like, ugh, like you're just going to kill someone for a felony. And then I remember he, um, so at some point we, we were being rushed out and uh, David goes through something at him like, you know, uh, how dare you with, you know, the, the Gore election. And then I remember he goes, uh, Scalia goes, have, have some dignity. Like, how dare you interrupt my process? And then I said, well, you interrupt, interrupted the election. And then like, who are you guys? And they started screaming at us. And then we ran. And then we, I remember running through the quad, like just running for our lives away from this thing. It was like so much fun. You, you and David O. Russell running from Scalia? Scalia and his like cronies. Yeah. Uh -huh. It was awesome. Wow. But, so like there was a lot of fun stuff that happened with us. And like, honestly, creatively, I don't think I've ever met anyone that I've identified with as much. And it was like a real education. Yeah. But Do you, you know, think you guys this, will ever bring it around? Maybe. I mean, I'm not yeah. opposed to it. It's just, you know people change and sure. people do stuff that's kind of hard to swallow and right you know yeah so when when that happened it sort of you know whether the timing was right or not or whether it was a good thing uh it, how it felt at the time it kind of what that's when you took up on your own yeah i mean it was directly related to that so the the pretty much i think it was like the fourth week yeah. of filming is when i kind of pieced out um, I started writing my first script on my own that ended up becoming my first movie, Life After Beth. And, uh, and you made that? I made that. I ended up making it 10 years later. I wrote it in like 2003. What did you do for 10 years? I was just writing studio jobs. I was like doing, you know, rewrites and stuff like really? that. Really? Yeah. That's what you were able to get from working with David, that you had done some rewrites. Yeah. I mean, my first thing I wrote became a feature that got produced. So like you get in a exclusive Did you share club. the credit? Yeah. It was me and him. And like, what kind of rewrites were you doing? Because I rewrite rewriters are sort of unsung. Sometimes heroes, sometimes guys just making a buck. But yeah. it's amazing how many people I know that are uncredited for anything, but did a pass on big scripts. 
I did pass on a bunch of stuff. I, I can't remember anything that like I, it was a lot of stuff. I that there was a couple of originals that I mean I'm dealing with studios and I mean I don't know if if you like you can tell by my last movie it's I don't have necessarily the most like studio. But is, is, is that just a, a a fee thing where they're like give this kid twenty five grand or ten grand and let him do a pass and that's that? No, I was doing like originals too. So like you're getting paid a lot of money to you're writing original writing script. original scripts. Yeah, it's not like I'm doing a polish. So you had stuff. a script you had a script deal. Yeah, I was always doing scripts for years. And I think, you know, coming off of that experience, I was in 2003, I wrote Life After Bath to direct, almost made it with Searchlight. It got really close and then it kind of fell apart the last second. I think I was discouraged and I'd never wanted to be a writer. I wanted to be a director. And But when of, you have a script deal, what does that mean? It's like you got three, a three script oh, no, deal. It's not like it's, I didn't have like an overhead deal. I would just do job, job to job. They would send me, you know, they'd send me scripts. And then if I like identify with them, I thought I could fix them. Or if it was an idea that I thought like would be fun and work right. on, I would do it. But, you know, eventually it kind of like wore out its welcome. And then uh, I just started getting back into trying to direct. But I think the... That whole experience, kind of that that whole time period was like a little bit dark. Yeah, and so I try to like because of what went on with David. Yeah, and just sort of like yeah, the whole time was like kind of slight disillusionment. Definitely more than slight. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. About like what you could and couldn't do in this town. Yeah, like what you can get away with. What what people were open to letting happen, and also like what wasn't allowed to happen, and and how can you make what you want to do happen. Yeah, and then you're just sort of like, okay, I get it. And then obviously, the as the economy started going south, and if if you start tracking that time period was sort of this like highlight creatively, I think of the mini major studios. You have yeah. all these different guys, you know, like Wes Anderson, David, um, Alexander Payne, Spike Jones. They're all kind of blossoming around that time, and then a little bit after that, those companies start shutting down. Like there's companies that don't exist anymore. Like yeah. Warner's Independent doesn't even exist anymore. There's right. tons of places that were outlets for that kind of style of filmmaking. And I think now you're starting to see it kind of come back. Like it's coming back in vogue and you see a new generation of people trying to do this thing. But um, for a good run there, it just disappeared. Yeah. You know, that's when you started getting all the superhero kind of comic book things. Right. And action movies and science fiction they stuff. They need to make the big bucks. Yeah. I mean, like the, everything's much more reductive. And especially when the economy went south, like I guess in between 2007 and 2009, that was like the death knell for all those guys. You know, like it, everyone had a harder time kind of making that stuff happen. So... How did you pull yourself together to put your make your first movie? It just kind of happened. Like I, um, Mike Zakin, who runs a random American Zoetrope, he kind of figured out this system with the tax credits in Los Angeles. Yeah, and he's like, dude, we can make a movie for a million dollars. Do you have anything you want to do? And what ultimately, Joshi was what I had wanted to do. This is back in like 2011 or something, 2012. Yeah. I wanted to make that movie, and I got together Chris Pratt and. Um, uh, Pally, it was Pally, and I, you know, it was our thing. Adam Pally, Adam Pally, uh, Chris Pratt, Jake Johnson, and Ben Schwartz got together, and we were going to make this movie. And then Pally's mom passed away, and so I had this tax credit. And then we're like, well, what are we going to do? And then I, uh, Aubrey's agent remembered this script that I'd read, written uh, Life After Bath, and he's like, what about that? It would be perfect for Aubrey. And I was like, holy shit! Like I wrote it for her, but I didn't know her. this like seven years before I even met her. Yeah, and like I don't know who else would have done that. You know, like <laughs> right? It was like I think Zoe Deschanel or someone we were talking about. But yeah, the, the, like no one can do what Aubrey did in that movie. I, don't, I know you haven't seen it, but it's like it's it's basically like a vehicle for Aubrey, even though I didn't know who she was. Right. And and then we just jammed that through like at the last second. As a lot of my movie moves have been like last second, like jumping on opportunities instead of like careful plotting for years. Yeah, it's almost just like sort of reading the tea leaves and being like, okay, this can happen right now, and I got to move real quick. Uh huh. Yeah, I mean, I thought Joshi was great. I enjoyed it, but it, but you know this this idea of uh, you know fate. <laughs> 
comes and goes. Like, what did you study when you studied Jewish mysticism? Like what specifically? Well, I mean, what did you take from it? I got way into mysticism at one point. I don't, I don't know how that went down. I think when I was a kid, I I was studying about the history of Spain yeah. and all the different words that come from Arabic words from the Moors, you know, yeah. like there's zero and zenith and nadir. And one of them was um, alchemy, yeah. where chemistry ultimately sure. came from. And I was just so blown away by this idea of alchemy, of uh, that there are people that think they can turn lead into gold and live forever and like as a kid that's amazing but i never like let go of that yeah and so especially as i got into high school and college i was always reading you know works that had to do with alchemy not not like new agey stuff but like literal original works and um kabbalah which is like the jewish mysticism yeah. features prominently in that stuff like that worldview of this idea of repairing there's this thing called tikkun yeah where you um you find the sparks of divinity and trash basically and elevate it to make it divine is the the basic premise of alchemy yeah and so i i was definitely you know into all that kind of occult shit when i was in college like like how far like what, what how did it like, influence your life i mean at one point i did the lesser banishing ritual with a pentagram yeah so like shit like that but yeah i mean i, I was i wouldn't say like i'm an occultist right but i there's something poetic and beautiful about it almost yeah. artistic yeah um and i think as an artist i think opening yourself up to that process where i i mean i think ultimately all that stuff is a metaphor so yeah. if you're a, if if you're talking about the you know mystical philosophy of the middle ages and renaissance it's i don't know what percentage of the people thought they were going to really turn lead into gold but it's you're transforming your soul i mean you look at carl jung stuff and yeah. carl jung super identified how that is completely mimicking or not mimicking but mirroring what's going on in our brain yeah. and, and how our unconscious works with our conscious mind and so there is something to be said about that and i think opening yourself up to that kind of like logic or i don't know if it's logic but sort of that imagery and that sort of allegory allegorical stuff right it allows it kind of creates a conduit for i guess creativity, creativity yeah. yeah but but you also have to be careful that you you have some context in place or it can get pretty crazy making like Alistair Crowley Golden Dawn style well I mean well that that had a context you know that that practical magic business but but even in reading you, you know mystical texts and and you know looking at it as allegory that you know sometimes you know the dark side of that um if you get hung up on it or or sort of crossing over it into being like well this is real you know where you get into yeah. da Vinci code land yeah, that, that can kind of crush you in the same way that Avatar does. For sure. I mean, I definitely read Holy Blood, Holy Grail, but I also had read Foucault's Pendulum by Umberto Eco, which is poking fun at satire of uh -huh. all that kind of stuff, too. I mean, I always had a sense of humor about it. Yeah. I, I was never like, you know, wearing robes and, you know, trying to conjure sure, demons. Sure. And if anything, it was more just, for me, it was more just kind of coming up with a cosmogony, like trying to come up with a worldview, trying to come up with like some structure to the universe yeah. that isn't as obvious as religion or science, yeah. that there is something like I feel like you can tap into that is a little bit bigger than us that has a structure to it. Yeah. So that was always what was really interesting. I never really wanted to manipulate it from my own ends. Sure. But I did feel like there is some kind of sympathy there. But you do believe in like the, you know, the prophecy of dream and the uh the, the 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 dubious timing of things that transcend coincidence absolutely i mean i've had dreams that have come true like obviously with the the weird yeah. eyeball thing i've had weird out of body experiences that i was able to verify you know like with people i was able to see people doing stuff as they were doing it mm -hmm. and they were able to like say that actually happened so i i don't necessarily think that that's supernatural 
I think it's natural. We just don't understand the extent of it. Or the, you know, what parts of our brain have been shut down out of necessity to uh, function as humans. Yeah, I mean, I think it was, uh, was it Seneca or Maybe Cicero? not even necessity. Maybe that were shut down for us to be civilized. I think it was like Seneca said, the only thing that's stopping us from walking on water is our doubt. You know, like I obviously like then you can't not think of it. But yeah, I think like the ability of our minds are obviously we, we don't know to what extent w- what we're capable of. So we or just, what we're connected to or, or we're how connected we're connected to, or how we're connected or, you know, like I've read all kinds of stuff. You yeah. know, there's ideas that our brains are just basically antennas yeah. and we're just picking up, you know, signals. Yeah. And that's what we are. Right. Um, but I don't know. I, yeah. I'm just I don't have any answer. I just know there's a lot more going on than what we explain. Good. Good. Yeah. Thank I'm 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 happy to know that. <laughs> Thanks for talking to me, man. Yeah, of course. All right, man. That was a high octane conversation, intense and engaged and good. I like that guy. Smart guy. Good director, interesting fellow. As I said earlier, The Little Hours is now playing in New York and L.A. It's going to be expanding throughout the country soon. Maybe I'll play some guitar. It's been a few days. I know a lot of you are just clamoring to hear me fucking noodle and repeat myself. Hold on. So, dead, deaf, black cat, blues meditation. I think. I think we'll try to do that. Bye, deaf black cat. Boomer lives!